You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, July 23rd, 2008, and this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. And Evan Bernstein. Hi, everybody. And on this date in 1995, comet Hale-Bopp was discovered Hale Bob. for the first time. Good old Hale-Bopp. Yeah. I think the mothership was That's behind right. that, you know, right? That's right. And it became visible to the naked eye about a year later. And shortly after that, in 1997, uh, some folks over at the Heaven's Gate cult decided to take the eternal ride on the tail of the comet as it passed by and... They are no longer gracing us with their presence. So That was very sad. Very sad. Shows the, the power that a charismatic cult leader can yep. have. It's amazing. Absolutely. But the comet was cool. It was very cool. <laughs> the that comet was, was cool. Yeah. That was. It was up there for, for a long time. It's very nice. Yeah. Like a little snowball hanging in the sky. We have another bit of astronomical news this week. Shortly after coming up with the new category Plutoid, which are dwarf planets like Pluto that cross the uh, orbit of Neptune and are in the Kuiper Belt. The third Plutoid has been officially named. So we have Pluto, the archetype of the Plutoid. We have Eris, E-R-E-S. And now we have Maki Maki. That's right. Maki Maki. Maki Maki. I love that. That's my favorite name of all of them. With a little Cajun spice or something, yeah. It just doesn't seem right to me. I don't know. It just doesn't sound like a plutoid to me. Doesn't sound like a plutoid? Well, they did get away from the Greek mythology, and this one is Easter Island mythology, the creator god, I guess, of the Eastern Island mythos. Mm. So they did did break from the classic Greek. They did. I think that's all right. But they are still embracing mythology with the naming of these bodies that they continually find. I guess more for tradition, I guess, than, than any other reason. Yeah, that's cool. I think it's a good, good system to use for naming heavenly bodies. Sure. So now we have – the solar system is getting very complicated. We have eight planets, and we now have four dwarf planets, Ceres, which is in the asteroid belt between Mars mm-hmm. and Jupiter, and three Plutoids, as I said. Pluto, which has one moon, Charon. Uh, Eris, which has a moon, Dysnomia, or Dysnomia. And now Makimaki, which doesn't have a moon as far as – as far as we know. But, you know, and there's going to be more uh, coming down the body. Oh, yeah. coming, a lot coming more. The, there's going to be a lot that's more. Right. Another 41 discovered objects in the solar system might belong in the category of dwarf planet. And uh, mm-hmm. they're also saying that estimates are that the actual, the actual number of dwarf planets might increase to 200 once the entire Kuiper belt is fully studied and explored. It'll right. take a long time. We're going to have to come up with some new mnemonic devices. I have to start naming them after skeptics. That's oh, my that recommendation. Would be awesome. Yeah, I'm okay with that. And scientists, you know, scientists and scientists. Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, that'll work. Um, a lot better than Disney characters, you know. Yeah, like Pluto. <laughs> Although that was a very good marketing, I have to say, Pluto remains the most popular planet with children. Now you know how people are kind of upset that recently, you know, Pluto was was demoted to into the category of dwarf planet. Um, yeah. But at, at the same time, you know, there's going to come a time in which dwarf planets, obviously, are going to outnumber the main planets. So Pluto yeah. will be in a, in a majority. We will be in a minority. It's not about the number, though, is it? I mean... It's about size. Size matters. Sorry, Pluto. Get over it. There's a trans-Neptunian object, a TNO, that they've called Orcus. 
mm-hmm. of, all, of all things. And orc, but that's a designation that's not an official name yet? No, that is a name. No. It, it's, it's, it's a pl- but it's, it's a pl- not big enough to be a dwarf planet? It's a Plutino is what they're calling it. Oh, a Plutino. A Plutino. Oh, you uh, made that up. But the name Orcus is a, is is a, is a demonic name, if I, if I recall, is it not? Uh, you know, we just had our um, skeptic drink contest, and now I kind of wish that we had made a Plutini, <laughs> Plutini. <laughs> shaken, not stirred. <laughs> Maybe for the next round. But Evan, you know, Pluto is the lord of the underworld, so they do sort of stick with the underworld theme out there in the in the Kuiper Belt. Sure, sure, I understand that. A Plutini would have the tiniest little olive floating in it. Sorry, go on. <laughs> and, and lots of ice. Dirty ice. You got to put dirty ice. Yeah, a lot of dirty right, ice. Yes. A dirty martini. <laughs> I like this. The next news item uh, has to do with the misadventures of alternative medicine. This comes from the UK. A woman by the name of Dawn Page, age 52, you know, wanted to lose a little weight. So she sought out a nutritional therapist and life coach, a woman by the name of Barbara Nash, who was trained at the College of Natural Nutrition which should have been her first warning sign. Uh-huh. For those of us in the know, for skeptics, the word natural these days is uh, just shorthand for quackery. If you hear any peals of thunder in the background, it's because we're having a bit of a lightning storm. Hopefully the podcast won't abruptly end. <laughs> Hopefully we won't abruptly yeah, end, right? surrounded by <laughs> electronic equipment in the middle of an electrical right. storm. Although I do think the lightning in the background is really cool, so I hope you can hear that. But anyway, so the Barbara lightning. Nash put this woman, Dawn Page, on the amazing hydration diet. Now, <laughs> like this water. diet included forced drinking pints of, of water, f- starting with four a day, four pints of extra water a day, and drastically reducing her salt intake. This is a prescription that a first-year medical student will recognize as a, as a prescription for disaster. They prescribe those now, huh? She started to get lightheaded and was vomiting, wasn't feeling very well. So Barbara Nash does what most alternative practitioners do. They interpret anything that happens after they prescribe their intervention as evidence that it's working, whatever it is. That's the key part where it all goes wrong. It's yes. like, you know, we could put up with the the very first crappy treatment if only the person getting the treatment said, you know what, this isn't working, I'm not feeling well, let me get a second opinion. The people who do that live or don't get brain damaged. Right. Yeah. For practitioners, the basic clinical you know, practice, if the patient's getting worse, you've got to reassess them. You don't just assume it means that your treatment's working. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Was this person the first guinea pig to go on this diet? No. No, no, no. on this diet, no, no, no. No, because this is like standard detox where it's just assumed that more water is always going to be better. You're flushing your system out. Before this has ever had a name, it's been around. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I know plenty of people who do things like that, but granted, not to the extent of this. And if they start feeling bad, then I kind of trust them a little more to actually stop and go to a doctor. Yeah, I think that's probably, you know, where this case went different than most other cases. I think most other people, if they were, when, once they're vomiting and feeling like crap, might not proceed with the treatment. But she went back to the nutritional therapist and Nash told her to increase her fluid intake to six liters a day and reduce her salt even more. Wow. And that caused her to have a seizure. I couldn't even read the the whole article in one go. It it was skeeving me out so much. Yeah. So again, you know, this is the kind of thing that 
you know, basic kind of physiology, sort of first-year medical student stuff, you'd realize this is just incompetent. This is what you would do if you're trying to kill somebody. Uh, you drive down the sodium to dangerous levels. You know, our bodies actually need sodium uh, and and the, all the electrolytes, actually chloride, whatever, to be within a fairly narrow range in order for the physiology on the cellular level to work out okay for your your brain and your heart and those kind of important organs to work really well. So if the, when the sodium gets too low, one of the things that can happen is you can become delirious, first of all. You also can have a seizure, and that's exactly mm. what happened to her. She, she apparently had some permanent brain damage as a, as a consequence of her very low sodium and her, and her seizure. It's not clear from the documents that I have, from the news reporting, exactly how that happened, what the mechanism was, but it's certainly plausible. So then she, of course, sued, or her, her husband sued, the nutritionist, and the, the news that's being reported now is that they just won an award of 800,000 pounds, which I understand is real money. <laughs> I, I really wish that in addition to that, that they could, that the nutritionist could face some kind of um, criminal charge for this because yeah. it seems like negligence or endangerment or some fancy term for you like after and hurt someone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have to be careful prosecuting malpractice as uh, criminal. I mean, you have to. You need something more than just malpractice. Like it has to be depraved indifference mm-hmm. or reckless endangerment or something more. Which this may rise to that level. I'm not disagreeing with that. But you do have to think that just legalistic terms. You know, what what is it beyond just the uh, the incompetence that you'd be prosecuting criminally? But this is a symptom of a, of a broken system, right? This is not. Just, and the BBC reporter this did a very good job of not just reporting this case, but putting it in the context of. This is a broken system of regulation in the country. So she got a degree from the co- the College of Natural Nutrition. She was allowed to practice. You know, this is the kind of thing that has a general acceptance in the culture now, and it victimizes people like Don Page because it seems like this is it seems superficially perfectly uh, legitimate. I mean, healthcare shouldn't be a let the buyer beware kind of market. Steve, you know what I mean? How much is the national healthcare system? contribute to something like this? Because, you know, we don't have that here in the United States, but other countries do. Yeah, well, they think that the government contributes to it in different ways within their system based upon ineffective regulation. So in the UK, it's the National Health Service and what they cover, what they recognize. In this country, it's what insurance companies will pay for. It's, you know, the National Center for Complementary Alternative Medicine, you know, what the government will spend research dollars on. In whatever the system is, you know, the regulators do have a lot of power over what gets recognized as legitimate. So it's not just the scientists, it's not just the physicians or the scientific practitioners who are deciding what's legitimate, what is the standard of care. In many ways, it's also what regulators allow. And and that's what you're talking about here. So I I looked a little bit at this College of Natural Nutrition. And, you know, it's just really, I mean, you could be reading a psychic's website. I mean, you read it and it's the standard kind of new agey, natural philosophy stuff, really, really squishy. They say that their philosophy is they want to empower their patients. Yeah, that's that's pretty standard alternative medicine jargon now. We're going to empower their patients with the knowledge of how the, their current health picture has arisen over their lifetime and previous generations. So they want to show them how to you know, support their own healing with nutrition and so-called naturopathic techniques. It's all very um, evidence and logic and science-free. It's just all the feel-good, new-agey 
stuff. And it's unfortunate that they get to attach the label nutritionist to this kind of stuff because nutrition is a legitimate medical science, biological science. But now it's just completely overwhelmed by this kind of alternative nonsense. And this, this is the result. And this is not an isolated case. I've actually, you know, I don't see a lot of this kind of stuff. I've personally seen two cases of this. Neither patient suffered permanent damage because they got admitted to the hospital and we knew how to treat them. But um, I've seen patients in a, in a, with seizures and acute delirious states because of wacky nutritional advice they got from either the guy at the health food store or some nutritionist following this kind of philosophical stuff. This is going to get a lot worse before it gets any better. I mean, how far yeah. can this go? It's it all the way, way, Bob. It's, it's really... It really can. It, what's it going to be like in five or ten years? I think I think we're just going to be... We're on our way to find Surrounded out. by this crap. It's going to be bad. They also often have the media on their side. I mean, Steve, like you pointed out, not in this particular case of this article, uh, so it would seem. But more often than not, media is on the side of, uh, of alternative medicine. Well, it's, it's the dog bites man. You know, alternative medicine for a long time was the dog bites man story. Oh, this, you know, fringe... You know, treatment is now being accepted or may seem to work or whatever. Uh, but now I do think this is one of the turning points is that, well, maybe their charlatans after all is becoming kind of the dog bite man, dog bites man story. <laughs> so the, the BBC actually did a good job, you know, of, re- of reporting on this. So um, I, I think I'm seeing more of that now um, the, that some reporters are getting a bit more savvy. It's still probably in the vast minority, but at least occasionally you'll, you'll encounter a savvy reporter who kind of sees that it's okay now to say that this is, maybe this is all bunk. Every candle know? in the dark helps. Yep. Especially when you have like a sexy actress or something who is advocating for the side of good for a change. That's right. And this takes us to our, our next news item. That was a nice very nice segue. segue. You know, I had a dog name segue. <laughs> the next news item uh, has to do with Amanda Peet, who is an actress, Yay. primarily a television actress. She's, I think she's done some movies too. <laughs> Yay, actress. Yay, Amanda Peet. <laughs> So she put out a uh, an, a video and, and did an interview where she said that you know when she it came time to make the decision whether or not to vaccinate her children that uh, she did the research and her brother in law is a pediatrician so that really helped and she's found that you know vaccines are safe that they protect against disease infectious diseases and that all the hysteria about a possible connection to autism is not based upon evidence so she decided not only to vaccinate her kids, but to come out and say, this is the right thing to do, this is what I advocate, you know, that we shouldn't be afraid to vaccinate your kids. And she also said that parents who don't vaccinate their children are relying upon those other parents who do, like parasites. She used the word parasites. Um, she got a lot of flack for that. She, and apologized. she apologized. She did apologize, which, you know, should she, I, should she have... I don't know. I think so. She, what, she apologized by saying that term was divisive, and yeah, you know, it's pretty inflammatory. But then she backed up why she said it. She's and she's absolutely right. Yeah, that's the way to mm-hmm. do it. Yeah, which is fine. She at least she didn't back down from the point, which is right, that okay. when you get to over ninety ninety five percent of a population. Uh, vaccinated, you get what's called herd immunity, which means that a virus or an infection can't really spread from person to person because they're too few and far between. That's herd immunity. If you're one of the unvaccinated, you're relying upon herd immunity, which exists because all the other people are vaccinating. And that is kind of a parasitic thing to do. But here's the thing, that there are some people who cannot be vaccinated, some children, for example, who cannot be vaccinated because they have some underlying illness 
and they can't tolerate the vaccines or they, they won't respond to the vaccines. So they are dependent upon herd immunity. Mm-hmm. But if enough people voluntarily forego vaccines to the point where it drops below the level where you need herd immunity, herd immunity then you start to get outbreaks. Then the virus can spread, and this has been happening. We've been having yeah. measles, out, measles outbreaks in this country. The UK has it far worse than we do because they don't have as high vaccination rates as mm. we do. Um, and this is a direct result of the fear-mongering from the anti-vaccination crowds. The other thing that uh, some of the anti-vaccinationists say, trying to be logical. I love it when they try to be logical. It's so cute. They say, <laughs> what if, if, if vaccines work, then you're vaccinated, and it doesn't matter if other people are vaccinated. In other words, herd immunity doesn't matter uh-huh. if you are vaccinated. Um, and if it doesn't work, then nobody needs to get vaccinated. So then, th- yeah. then there's no argument. But they miss a couple of points. One is that, as I said, there's a vulnerable population who can't be vaccinated. But two, you know, no one said that vaccines are 100% effective. You know? So if vaccines are you know, 95% effective, that's still really, really good. And that's enough to get to herd immunity so that there's not going to be outbreaks. But uh, if you don't have herd immunity, the 5% or so of people who didn't mount a sufficient immune reaction to the vaccine and don't have immunity from the vaccine are going to be vulnerable to getting infections. So, and those are innocent bystanders. They did everything they were supposed to do. They're just unlucky and not reacting well to the vaccine. Uh, and now they're getting sick because somebody else you know, decided not to, uh, to vaccinate their kids. So that argument doesn't hold any water at all. And you know, you, there's also diseases like polio where we're actually... Uh, have eradicated it from countries. We're on the verge of eradicating it from the world. And the only thing that's really keeping us from doing that is fears over vaccines, false fears about about uh, conspiracies and vaccines. So um, that's another point. You know, some of these infectious diseases, we might actually, like like smallpox, we might actually be able to get rid of completely, but not if people are spreading irrational and not evidence-based fears about vaccines. So Steve, a question about that. So, you know, when, in, the, in the case of thimerosal, which, if, correct me if I'm wrong, is a preservative, it's meant to preserve, mm-hmm. to preserve That's it. Correct. But then, but, but they, they since have, have removed the thimerosal, at least from the MMR. Well, thimeros- thimerosal was never in the MMR vaccine. Right. Thimerosal was in some of the vaccines that were part of the childhood vaccination schedule, but not the MMR. Is it gone from so all, it was, all vaccinations now? It, it's gone from all vaccines that are part of the routine childhood vaccination schedule as of 2002 in this country. It's only in um, some flu vaccines that children may get. But even then, there are thimerosal-free flu vaccines available. The other bit is that thimerosal is only necessary in the multi-shot vaccines because they, they need a longer shelf life. The single-shot vials don't require it. So we've basically just shifted over to the single-shot vials, which are fine, but they're more expensive, which isn't a big deal in this country. But in you know poverty-stricken nations, it, it's a huge deal. I mean, it makes it's the difference between being able to afford vaccination and not being able to afford So you're it. saying so, there's no other preservative in the vaccinations that nothing else has been invented or, or come up with it's it's preservative preservative free essentially i mean there are yeah there if without thimerosal they do not make multi um, dose vaccines there are manufacturing processes that they use to sterilize and and to minimize any fungal or bacterial growth in the vaccines so there are trace amounts of things that are remain in there but they're not really ingredients in the vaccines they're just trace amounts that are left behind from the manufacturing process gotcha. which has to be sterilized See, i've never understood that steve so thank you for clarifying that um, and then they say like oh there's still thimerosal in the vaccine because there's these really tr- 
absolutely trace amounts left over from the manufacturing process, but not as an ingredient of the vaccine. Mm-hmm. So that's just another more deception that, that the anti-vaccinationists engage in. So I wrote about the Amanda Pete thing because I thought it was interesting that she did this. It's, you know, I, I gave her props for doing that, although I made the point that you know, I, I appreciate celebrities who use their fame to support a cause, but I think that it's important for celebrities not to in, interject their own scientific beliefs or judgment into the scientific community. Let the scientists make you know decide what is good science. You know, and I used Michael J. Fox, I think, as the model for what celebrities should do. He's a very effective spokesperson for Parkinson's disease awareness and research, but he's not telling scientists what to research. You know what I mean? He's not saying, this is my own theory of what causes Parkinson's disease. Nobody cares about that. He's a, he's a movie star. He's not a television Right. The whole point is just to shine a spotlight on, yeah. here's what researchers are doing. Yeah. Go support them. And I think that yeah. for the most part, I, I think most celebrities who are not supporting Bunk do a really good job of that. Yeah. And I think the only reason why Amanda Peet came out for a specific you know, conclusion, vaccine safety, is because of Jenny McCarthy and her ilk. Are, you know, Jenny McCarthy is the former Playboy Playmate and MTV uh, star who has become the spokesperson for the anti-vaccinationist movement, the Green R Vaccines campaign, all that crap with her boyfriend Jim Carrey. Now they got Hugh Hefner in the act and now they're getting Britney Spears in the act. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, wow. But no, I don't think that that's why Amanda Peet got involved um, because uh, as you mentioned, her brother-in-law, mm-hmm. I think, is a um, is involved with an organization, and according to her, they came to her and specifically asked if she would uh, be a spokesperson for them. Oh, really? Yeah. No, I, I agree, but I think that that's happening in reaction to the celebrities on the other side. That's just my opinion, you know. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I mean, yeah, I'm sure it's all tied in. So this led to a, a real uh, blog war between myself and David Kirby yeah. and John Dr. John Poling, who's the neurologist father of Hannah Poling, who is the girl who uh, has some neurodegenerative disease that uh, has autism features. Her father insisted is autism. I'm not convinced. I think you know it just has features of autism, and she has a mitochondrial disorder. And this raised the, this interjected the whole notion of of uh, the interplay between mitochondria and and possibly vaccines and, and the cause of autism. So. It's kind of a complicated story, and we've been fighting it out um, on Neurologica and then science-based medicine, and then he wrote an open letter to me on Age of Autism. David Kirby sort of called me out on the Huffington Post. It's been a lot of fun, actually, going at it with those guys. So so I I recommend that you read them if you're interested in this story because we go into a lot of detail. But a lot of it hinges on this whole notion of celebrity spokespersons and what their proper role should be and – um, you know, the anti-vaccinations are a little hypocritical in attacking Amanda Pete when they haven't been uh, holding Jenny McCarthy to the same standard. I mean, she's like out and out lying to the public. That's okay, though, because she's a mom. Yeah, you know, an- she's a anti-free. She's the mommy defense, which I hate. Oh, yeah, the, the mommy defense. <laughs> Mommy's instinct. Yeah. Oh, just just that, a complete non sequitur. Yeah, that beats any science I know. There's the other celebrity who sort of – who. Uh, decided to interject their opinion into the whole autism debate, although this was at the other end of the spectrum, was Michael Savage, who is a... Ugh. Evan, he's a... Cons- it's appropriate to characterize him as a conservative. Absolutely. He's a that's, that's, that's exactly right. He's a uh, conservative radio talk show host. 
right. uh, who's um, who's you know got a pretty decent sized audience, about six million. Six million, six million yeah, listeners a, a week. Yeah. So he said that ninety nine percent of kids with autism are just brats whose parents don't discipline them. That's some paraphrasing, but that he used the term brat, and and said that ninety nine percent of it's fake, basically. I mean. Solves that problem. He's a shock jock. Yeah, yeah, but even but, okay. I, but I think the he really shock believe, thing. He really believes that. Oh yeah, I'm. I'm not saying I'm not condoning him. I'm just saying that he's an idiot. Most people know he's an idiot. I, I should hope. Yeah, but that's it's not that's really a big old surprise. school ignorance. Yeah, that's yeah. just like yeah, the that's, cranky old man. Ah, this autism. Yeah. It's all bratty kids. Right. I mean, that's like something from the fifties. You know. It's shocking, all right. I thought we were beyond <laughs> at least that level. Yeah, yeah. So it was telling. Me. He's got a lot of flack for that. And oh. then he, then he, um, the following show, he he kind of backpedaled, but he really, I thought, very deceptively tried to defend himself by saying, what I really meant was I'm very much in favor of these kids and I don't want any resources being taken away from them by those who are fake, those parents who are faking it to get, to get like disability and to get services. It's like, no, that's not what you said. You said 99% is fake, you know, and that it's just bratty kids. Mm-hmm. It was a, kind of a lame defense. And he used a lot of arguments that sound a lot like what I call mental illness denial, like saying that there's no objective test for it. It's based upon, you know, clinical features. Well, yeah, yeah, so are migraines. You know, it doesn't mean they're not real. I mean, autism, there's so much basic neurological science behind it. The notion that it's some kind of soft diagnosis is just absurd. But, uh, you know, <clears throat> Savage does have a bit of a quote-unquote medical background. Um, he, <laughs> he is a homeopath. He's written books on homeopathy. Books. Has he? Yep. I didn't even realize that. I hated with, him even though I didn't know that. Huh. He wrote a bunch of books on, on alternative medicine type woo stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yep. Before he got into radio, that's what he did. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, I don't know. My goodness. Leave the science to the scientists. Please. 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 James Von Prague has uh, put himself back in the news recently. I guess he's got a new book out and uh, got on The View to to push his book. So James Von Prague is a medium and alleged psychic who talks to to the dead. A uh, cold reader. Yeah, he's basically a cold reader who talks to the loved ones of uh, of the recently departed. You know, I talk to the dead too. It's just that they never answer me. Right. I like to think of it as charades with the dead. That's what it looks like more to me. Yeah. He was kind of eclipsed by uh, John Edwards, though. Yeah, I think it's the it's the weird pedo mustache and the the, the hair. Yeah, Oof. I think Edward kind of beat him out on that. I mean, yeah. he's really like Edward is pretty skeezy, but Von Prague takes the oily. Use car salesman act to a whole new level. Douchebag by any other name. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and yes, everyone, that that was a personal attack. So you can write that down in your what the pet mustache fallacy book. Yeah, <laughs> no, we're we're not saying that, but that's not why he's, he's wrong. wrong. He's not saying he's wrong, and the psychics are not real because he's a douchebag. We're saying he's that wrong, and, and also he's a douchebag douche <laughs> with a pedo mustache. So get, but get this. So after um, the day after he was on. Barbara Walters tells this story. He says, after the interview, and when the, the, the interview was over, so the cameras weren't on, Von Prague came up to her and said, can I talk to you for a minute? She's like, oh, yeah, sure, you know, just we can, we can talk. And he said, I see some, your energy that 
you know, because of your energy that you have problems with your lower back and with your blood. And Barbara Walters, who you know, actually reacted right. in, in, in a quite skeptical and savvy way, said, you know, who doesn't have lower back problems? I mean, you know, you go up to a 70-year-old yeah. woman, or I don't know how old she is, but she's an old, you know, older woman, so you have lower back problems. Mm-hmm. Talk about your high-probability hit. Plus, that's true. Plus, it's also, I think, pretty well known that uh, when she was younger, she had, I think, some major... Uh, she, I think she had to wear a brace and stuff, so she had some yeah. major sort of problems in that. I think it was with her lower back, and that's yeah. like that's out there. That's well known. So he's right. So either it was a hot read, reading. he knew yeah. that, or it was just a really high probability cold read. But then he yeah. followed up the blood thing by saying that your white cells are elevated. Hmm, a specific claim. Very specific. It's one of those white deceptively specific claims. That's right. Hmm. So Barbara Walters said, this is crap, but... Let me go to my doctor and check it out anyway. And they did blood tests and everything was normal. Her white count was normal. Everything was normal. So she was talking about like what, what, a, what a prick Van Prague was for <laughs> talking to her, making her worry about her health when it was Good all just her. a shtick. You mm-hmm. know? Although, so she, although she, she didn't use that it. word. No, she didn't. But mm-hmm. that's what she said. That, listen, he was doing this shtick on me. And made, I mean, that's a terrible thing to do to make somebody worry about their health. Yeah. Let me tell you about the white blood cell thing for, for a second. So... This is how you know that guys like Prague and Edward are consciously, you know, doing what they're doing. This is cold reading. White cells are frequently ab- elevated above the normal range for no specific reason. There's a lot of variability in the white cell count. You could have a, the sniffles and your white cell count will go up or it could just be high. I mean, you know, I look at blood tests, blood panels every day. You know, half the time the white cells are a little elevated, and who cares? You don't pay that much. It's the kind of thing that, in isolation, you don't pay that much attention to it. So again, it's kind of a high probability hit. You know, it's one of those things that you might think naively if you weren't a physician, you would you're not used to looking at blood work. You would think, "Wow, that was really specific." And look, it was elevated, and right. that would be very impressive. But you know, to somebody who's in the know, you realize that that's a really non-specific, very high probability hit. You know, so that is mm. that's the exactly the kind of trick that mentalists use. Yep. Exactly. And it's it's a totally scumbag thing to do because it's you know, again, as as Walters correctly observed, because you're scaring somebody about their health, you know. Right. So not only is he a con man, he's also unlucky. <laughs> well, <laughs> in that case. Now do you think this might be like because I I have not known Van Prague to make specific Claims about the state of a person of a healthy person before or whatever, just make any kind of technically a health claim. Do you think he's trying to try a new approach, maybe to recapture some of his maybe faded past glory, and try and try this new shtick out and try to see if how far he can take it and try? Well, you know, he's probably he's probably done the health claim thing before. Yeah, but we, have but- we seen it much on TV and other places? I, not that I, not that I've seen. No, he's been primarily a medium, but it's all cold reading. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's all lumped in with the same stuff. And, you know, if one's not working and he can switch to another, it's not that big of a deal. Um, I always wonder, you know, how much they think about whether or not they'll be held accountable for something that's um, being filmed. 
when they make medical claims. I know Sylvia Brown gets away with it far too often. I feel like she should probably be prosecuted in some way for giving out medical advice when she's not a doctor. Yeah. Um, they used but, to do that, you know. You can imagine the good old days when people would get <laughs> prosecuted for practicing medicine without a license. It almost never well, happened. Well, yeah, I mean, anymore. in the good old days, she'd be, you know, crushed to death <laughs> under stones as a witch. But, um, uh, <laughs> ah, the good old that, days. That was, <laughs> yeah, that that was a little joke. That was, oh, that we're was not joke? being serious there. The, this is what I suspect with this episode. I think that his calculation was that he would give her this little cold read about her back and the blood count. If if it missed, he lost nothing. It was off camera. He wasn't committing right. himself to right. on camera. That's true. If he hit and she bought it, then the next day she would be uh, amazed right. at how he did this. He would get another day of free promotion out of The View oh, and man. in a very positive, glowing light. Absolutely. So it was kind of a, a, a no, to, to his thinking, a, um, a, a very low-risk, very ho- possibly high-yield thing to do, but it backfired totally. on it because Walters was just one notch too savvy for him. She's spunky. Plus, he got unlucky. Plus, he, was, he got he unlucky. He was disappointed yeah, well. in Barbara's uh, response uh, to his uh, failed... And... And her misinterpretation of his... Uh, oh, just, she didn't misinterpret anything. Yeah, he yeah, tried, tried well, to well that's what he claimed. Too. That's what he claimed, yeah. that she's misinterpreting him. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah, because, you know, high white blood cells, that's so easy to misinterpret. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> if Jay were here, Jay has the night off, but if Jay were here, he would say that uh, Von Prog said, what she said was very, very hurtful and mean <laughs> and nasty, which is actually <laughs> what he said. That was a good impression of Jay doing an impression. Yeah, uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> one last quick news item, because again, our inboxes were flooded with this this one. It's, it is kind of funny. We talk a lot about pareidolia, a lot of you know Jesus or Mary sightings on toast or tree bark or whatever. Um, well, this is the first time I've seen one fr- uh, on the uh, the Muslim end of things. I guess that's because you're not supposed to have an image of Muhammad. So I guess they- yeah, but that's not true. Uh, no, there's the cow, a Muslim the one just a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. in Denmark there, there's been cartoons recently about. Uh, about See, the Ma- the thing Muhammad. is, so this is this is Allah meat. Yes, meat that that people say uh, meat which looks moldy and gross and weird. I don't. Yeah. I guess it's gristle or something. <laughs> they said yeah. they called it gristle. Yeah, and it spells out the name of Allah. And the thing is, this has happened before. And you're right in that it doesn't happen with Muhammad because nobody knows what Muhammad looks like. Because you're not you know, supposed to. Not a, supposed but yeah, to. so this is writing. Um, this is this was like the Arabic writing. Right. So they go with the writing of Allah, which you know, like most just regular words, it's like a bunch of squiggles yeah. and stuff. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, I mean, to us, of course, yeah, we, it looks like a bunch of squiggles. But no, I'm I did- saying like any word, any word is just a bunch of squiggles when you think about it. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, of course. They they did show it side by side, and it's like pareidolia. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. a, it's like a it looks like a, a W with something on the right side of it. And if you look at the word in Arabic, there's supposed to be a line on the right which really isn't there. So it has the same kind of pseudo closeish match that pareidolia of Jesus or Mary has in other contexts. So it's uh, it's just coincidence. Although they said there were two, I think two different two pieces or three. of meat. Throw three different pieces of meat that had the same writing on it, which makes me think that it was... There was Somebody's a, got a Nala stamp? Well, there was a, there was a template somewhere. Again, not yeah. necessarily deliberate, but it was off of a grill or something. Yeah. It does kind of look Caught like a grillish in, yeah. pattern, if you look at it. Yeah. But th- that's, that's an easy enough explanation for that. But some Islamic scholars were 
were consulted to, to help us interpret this, and they said they and they comment. They all commented that it was a sign to show that Islam is the only true religion for mankind. Yeah, oh, I mean well, it's obvious. It like if Allah wants to let us know that it's just Him and only Him, I mean obviously He's going to stamp His name on a piece of crystal in Nigeria, right? Just makes sense. There it is. Duh. Yeah, if, I, if I wanted to convince <laughs> the world of what the one true religion were, and I were all powerful, that's exactly what I would do. That's why I keep carving my name into desks, yeah. just to let people know. Uh, I, I like how they <laughs> consulted some doctor. Well, like, oh, yeah. Uh, like, why, why, why would they be able to interpret this? And he <laughs> said, vet? given the circumstances, there is no explanation. Yep. He's, a, he's not a doctor. He's a veterinarian. Well, he's got doctor in front of his name, Dr. Yuck. Yeah, but let's be clear. He's a veterinarian. He's a veterinary <laughs> okay. doctor. That's a doctor. Not, that yeah, not a medical not doctor. just as smart as anybody else, but it's just... That that for some reason that's well, me it's is not like this is a piece of human flesh, you know. It's a piece of animal. That's true. So bring it's in the vet to talk so they, about. That's it. a good exactly. point, Evan. But the point is, there is no doctor of anything that's qualified to interpret this. There's uh, no doctor like, follow me unless you're a doctor of psychology. How about doctor psychology? of religious- psychology? They, they should have called Richard Wiseman in. Yeah, there you uh, go. A doctor of pareidolia or a doctor of pareidoliologist. Doctor. Hey, I'm going to start calling myself. I'm a pareidoliologist. That's awesome. There you go. I'm Dr. Stephen Novella, pareidoliologist. And everyone Haven't will be I like, seen you before? No, I get that a lot. I get that a lot. I like that. Our- Thank you. I'll be here all week. Try the veal. Oh, wait. Give no. Your Try the gristle. <laughs> Try the gristle. Try the gristle. Let's go on to, uh, to some questions and email. First question comes from... Paul Schenker from Arizona, United States, and he writes, Hi, I'm a big fan of your show, and while I know this doesn't necessarily have to do with skeptic inquiry, the rogue's perspective on science I take as authoritative due to the simplicity with which you describe complex topics, something that is very important because I likely wouldn't be able to understand these topics otherwise. You and me both, brother. That's good. So we're authoritative because we're simple. That's good. Therefore, I want to ask a few questions. What is chaos? What is its relationship to science? What is its relationship to organization? Is this a pseudoscience? If it isn't, doesn't chaos appear within order, or is order created within chaos? Your views on this would further my education. Thank you for your time. We're well, Paul, need like another two hours. Chaos is an organization dedicated to the uh, evil takeover of the world, <laughs> and they Maxwell are opposed by a, a secret spy agency called Control. Control. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Steve, yes. that, I'm come learning. on, don't be silly. That's chaos with a K. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Well, I figured, I figured you just spelled it wrong. But assuming that maybe you're talking about chaos theory. Um, then I have a slightly different answer for you. Bob, why don't you, why don't you go ahead and take it away? I've always had uh, an interest in chaos theory. It, it's actually been a little bit of a while since I've been doing a lot of reading on it, but uh, I was always extremely interested in it. And one th- key thing that we need to discuss at first, though, is that the word chaos is kind of like the word theory itself, and that common usage is different from the more precise way it's used in science. In common parlance, chaos means utter confusion or, or disorder, but it doesn't really mean that in, uh, in chaos theory, which, uh, which describes the behavior of certain types of 
dynamical systems that change over time. An example um, is, a, a, say, a three-body astronomical system that's bound by gravity. That was the, the very first system where, uh, where chaotic be- behavior was actually detected by uh, Poincaré. And that befuddled Isaac Newton. He gave up mm-hmm. on the, the three-body problem. Was he befuddled or baffled? Or perplexed? Bewildered. No, he was, perf- he was befuddled. I think it was all three. But in Bob, at its core, chaos theory is really a mathematical discipline, right? Well, yes, absolutely, and that and that kind of ties into his question of of um, is it a pseudo is it a pseudoscience? I'm not sure where that's coming from. Maybe just because you hear, hear about it in the popular press, so you got to wonder if it's yeah, true or not. and um, and I, I think it ties into a lot of the questions uh, from from this from this email, and uh, especially the the question where it says what's its relationship to science? Well, its relationship is that it's a branch of mathematics, which is mm-hmm. a, you know it's. It's, uh, it's a science. It's science that, <laughs> that, that, as I said, describes the way uh, certain types of dynamical systems change over time. So it's re- it, it is science. I mean, there's really you know, it's not some little fringe thing that people are talking about. This is pretty solid stuff. And one one I can't really talk about chaos theory though without talking about one of the hallmarks of chaos theory is the is the so-called sensitive dependence to initial initial conditions. And that describes a system. Right. That's that's not describing chaos theory. That's describing a system in which these you know, chaotic effects are dominant. There's this right. The properties of such, of such systems is that they have a very sensitive dependence on initial conditions. Wait. Right. Which means that th- their initial state is so. I don't know if I want to use the word fragile, but it's so specific that if you were if you were to simulate a truly chaotic system and you ran a simulation of uh, of say the of say the weather and if you would if you changed your initial conditions by just the tiniest you know one in one trillionth amount you your your end result would be completely different so that's because very subtle changes are magnified through multiple complex interactions right the so, errors right. basically double over time and eventually the errors get so big that it swallows your entire simulation making any prediction you want to make essentially random you know the common expression of this is the butterfly effect mm-hmm. uh, as 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 it applies to to weather prediction you know it's so sensitive that a butterfly in texas flapping its wings could could cause a tornado on the other side of the world a year later type of thing i mean that's how exquisitely accurate you'd have to be you'd have to account for a butterfly flapping its wings in order to predict that tornado on the other side of the planet a year later. And and that's why we'll you know we'll never be able to predict the weather beyond a certain number of days. Because you cannot have infinite precision then you cannot predict beyond short term any any uh, chaotic system. It's it's impossible. So right. even even in a billion years with full blown mature nanotechnology and singularity and full swing <laughs> You're not, we're not going to be able to predict with accuracy, with high accuracy, what the weather's going to be like in a week if we don't have weather control. Right, weather control, I was going to bring that up, Bob. But that would, right. that would be a way of sort of cheating the system. His last question actually was interesting. It was a good question, and it really got me thinking, and it took me a, mo- a, a little while to realize what the answer was. Does chaos appear within order, or is order created within chaos? And I kind of could think of a reason to to support each one of those ideas yeah, at first, both. and then then I hit upon an interesting way to uh, approach it. I typed in Google "order from chaos" and I got 164,000 hits, and I typed in "chaos from order" and I got 2,000 hits. So <laughs> oh, that's I was thinking, oh, maybe it's maybe it's the first one, but then I, it hit me that it's a false premise. That question itself stems from the colloquial definition of chaos. 
uh, that it's random and uh, and crazy. And uh, but chaotic systems are not random; they are deterministic. They are completely specified from their initial conditions. It's just that we can never, in principle, know what those initial conditions are. But I, I also I interpret that a little bit different too. I thought order from chaos is like the relationship between weather and climate. Climate we can predict. Right. That is a large scale order that emerges from the finer chaos that we can't predict. So I can't know what's going to rain 43 days from now, but I can know that it's going to get colder as the winter comes upon us. Right. And that actually you know? ties in nicely to another concept of, uh, of chaos theory, and that's a strange attra- what a strange attractor is, which is basically the shape. If you, could, if you had to put a shape around a chaotic system and what the bounds the limits of what that chaotic system can do, it's called this, this shape, which is a, uh, a strange attractor. And surprisingly, the strange attractor for weather is this uh, really beautiful, very complicated fractal shape that looks like a butterfly. And so it was really ironic <laughs> that, it had, that it had that shape. But you're right, Steve, that ties into that whole idea of a strange attractor, and I wasn't going to bring that up uh, until I realized that the, re- the question was, ki- was kind of a false premise. It was stemming from a false premise. Uh, Bob, is there one book you would recommend for our readers to delve deep into this? Is it The Butterfly Effect? Is- yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. I would go to, go to some good science websites uh, to, for some primers on on chaos theory, the book by Gleick on chaos theory was one of the one of the seminal books on it. Uh, also, the Mandel, one of the Mandel, uh, the early Mandelbrot book on fractals and things. Um, but the Gleick book on on chaos is you know was seminal. I'd, I'd go with that. Well, let's go on to our interview. We have an interview that we recorded at TAM with George Hreb, who is a skeptical musician and a very cool Love guy. George. I, mean, I have to say, when we were at TAM. George stood out from across the room. Huh. He he was just his cool you know, suit, thin guy. He's a sexy mofo. Bald. One point he had his girlfriend with him, and he had his guitar slung over his back. Absolutely impeccable suit, and he, he, he looked like like a movie star, you know, and just kind of stood out in the in the skeptical crowd. Not that it wasn't a good looking crowd. It was just he had a style. <laughs> he had definitely had a style that that, all that, his that own. you could all his own. That definitely stood out. Well, anyway, let's go on to our interview. Well, we are sitting here now at TAM6 with George Hreb. George, welcome to the Skeptics Guide. Nice to be here. Nice to see everybody. Thanks so much for talking. Good good to see you. Good you know, you, you are a dapper fellow. I have to say that you're one of the best-dressed skeptics. Oh, well, here. yes, but that's kind of like saying I'm the smartest drummer. Not, that, <laughs> not exactly <laughs> that. <laughs> World's tallest midget. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> it's not, not the best Skinniest helmet, kid at no, fat camp. Uh, right, right. <laughs> so, uh, George, you are a skeptical performer. Yes, an yes. author and podcaster. Yes, and yes. Tell us a little bit about what you do. Uh, I'm a musician by trade. Uh, my day job, I call it, is, is playing drums for the Philadelphia Funk Authority, which is a nine-piece uh, funk band out of Philadelphia. We play uh, corporate things, festivals, private events. The most fun you can have playing music because it's all 70s soul R&B. Yeah, that's wow. my favorite. It's you know James Brown, Earth, Wind, and Fire, yeah. Stevie Wonder, all that fun stuff. That's my day job. Yeah, you know that's wow. that's what I do going to work. Uh, in my spare time, when I'm not doing that. 
I write music. I've, I've recorded five albums. Uh, I wrote one little silly book, and every week I do a podcast called The Geologic. Po- There's this thing called podcasting. I don't mm-hmm. know if you guys heard what? about this. Pod- that sounds interesting. Pod- really cool. You should check Flash it out. Flash in the pan. Tell yeah, us about your yeah. show. <laughs> My, it's 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 sort of a collection of silliness. And it it uh, a few years back uh, in college, I had done a radio show because I think that's the rule. You know, when you're in college, you have you to have do at to. least one radio program. Um, I did that, and it was sort of a talk show mixture weirdness thing. And uh, Lehigh University, which is – I live in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Lehigh University has a community radio program. In the summer, local community people can do programs. And a fan of mine, a guy who had seen me perform uh, my own material, said, you should do a show. Figuring I would do a music show, I thought, uh, uh, instead of a music show, which everybody else does, why don't I do something like what I did in college, which would be – sketches and observations and just stuff. So I kind of did that. That ended up being like a laboratory for what the geologic podcast would become. The bits that worked or didn't work, uh, got kind of coalesced from the three hours once a week down to the 45 minutes to an hour once a week. Now the show is a combination of sort of me doing crappy versions of Stan Freeberg sketches, sort of my, my, my reinter, modern reinterpretations. Uh, uh, there's skeptical material. There's, uh, what it's like to play in a nine-piece funk band, uh, what it's like to deal with uh, brides and brides' mothers, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, s- stories, you know, road stories. Um, and then just, I mean, I have a thing called Interesting Fauna, which people send me in if they find some cool animal that's got some bizarre facts about it. I just talk about that. There's a section called uh, Geo's Mom Reads Jay-Z Lyrics. My mom calls in and she <laughs> reads uh, Jay-Z Lyrics to me. That is hysterical. Uh, and then we just talk. It's basically an excuse for us to BS you yeah, know, for yeah. like five, ten minutes. But uh, it's a nice little hook there. There's the religious moron of the week, which is probably the most popular segment that I do. Uh, I every day probably get 10 to 15 emails from, from around the world, literally, of people sending me religious morons, yeah. and which can be of any stripe thing. You don't I like discriminate. To, no, no, idiots are, are the target, right. which is nice. Idiots are kind of it's a it's a pan target, so it's nice. Right. Um, that's probably the most popular bit that I do, uh, and it's things like that. You know, it's in and. What's, what's nice is it utilizes, uh, or, or at least it takes advantage of sort of every artistic part of my, or creative part of my head, you know, which is only like a square centimeter, but yeah. uh, to be able to do comedy stuff and write songs and then do the sort of atheist skeptical stuff and, uh, uh, and then to format it and use the technical part of my head to try to make it seem okay and produce the stuff and all the stuff that you guys do every week, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's really, pushes you to be as creative as you can be constantly. And it's so rewarding. It's like doing a little miniature record every week. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've done five records in 10 years. So it's, you know, averages out to what? One every three years. I'm not good at math. I'm not <laughs> Something, sure. like, Something that, like that. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, which is so rewarding, but, uh, there's such a huge span between the production and when the stuff comes out and mm-hmm. the people's response to it here every week, you know, Wednesday night, uh, like you guys know, you yeah. do it yeah. and you know, a day goes by and then you get responses right, right. away. Oh, and yeah. it's yeah. such a, satisfying creative process. Yeah, and you do, you do such a fantastic job. I love your podcast Thank and you. um and and your music, you know, when I heard Brains Body both. There I mean, you go. fantastic. Cool. Like, you know, Just skeptical you. anthems yeah. it was. Yes, yes. Like he knows me. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I wrote I wrote the song Skeptic and I I started it like I said yesterday in my performance, I think about 12 years ago. I I wrote the first two verses after reading Shermer's uh Why People Believe Weird Things. Mm-hmm. You know, I read this book. I was in London with a friend of mine. And uh, was waiting for him to come, and I had my little notebook, and I just started writing kind of the first verses of it. And to think, you know, twelve years later, you know, I'm getting handed a little plaque from the James <laughs> Randi Foundation, you know, th- thanking me for being part of their meeting. Yeah, I mean, it's 
you know, again, for, for someone who doesn't, <laughs> doesn't, uh, profess to, to believe in some kind of fate or deity, you know, the guiding hand, it's pretty friggin' cool. Yeah. You yeah. know, and, and, and I'm so unbelievably grateful and appreciative that, that, you know, folks like you make this kind of thing possible. And mm. it's really, really cool. Well, you know, I, I just think we need more people like you who, um, you know, I think we have a lot of scientists and engineers mm-hmm. and, and, and those sort of, people uh in the, in the skeptical like community <laughs> we need the idiots <laughs> yeah, uh yeah. no <laughs> i'm volunteering yes. uh we need the I'll artists we, you know we need the artists yeah. we need the, the yeah. creative thinkers because not everybody is going to be picking up skeptical inquire mm-hmm. right but you know they are watching youtube and yeah i mean you have to bring it into the culture more you, know, you look at the popularity of mythbusters you know yeah. which oh, yeah. is just i remember first seeing the show mythbusters i think it was like a pilot episode that they ran at three in the morning on a tuesday which is my <laughs> prime time because yeah. i'm always up you know, yeah. at that time and I remember seeing this show and thinking this is the coolest show I have ever seen and there is no way they're going to run this thing yeah. <laughs> like this will be two episodes and it'll stop because it's too smart yeah. the, the, the methodology is too well done there's not you know these guys they're not TV guys they're not hey, yeah, damn, yeah. we're going right. to explode stuff this is great yeah. you know <laughs> which every subsequent pseudo Mythbusters show is right. and it just makes me want to vomit yeah. um, you know if you can get outside the kind of cookie cutter idea of what's supposed to be entertaining, what's yeah, supposed yeah. to be your host, you know, that, that annoying Seacrest phenomenon, <laughs> yeah. you know, then oh, people God. think, well, that's what you want for a host. And it's like, no, you want a human being who's interested yeah. in what they do. And you don't have to be, you can be, you know, this walrus type person like he <laughs> is. And that's enough, you know, because you see how interested he is in the results and what's going on. Those kind of people, you know, Graydon Square, I did a show with him yesterday, who's, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've, if you've, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. you know, the, the, the hip hop skeptical, I mean, talk about a niche. Yeah, who knew that was yeah. going to work? Yeah, right. yeah. And yeah. it's just, you know, if you wanted orange roughy 30 years ago, or if you wanted sushi mm. 20 years ago, you wouldn't have found it in a supermarket. Yeah. You right. know, all of, all of those interesting foods that are, that are so delicious and amazing and, and, you know, culturally maybe, uh, uh, again, fit some kind of niche that weren't exposed. But somehow through the global market, these foods slowly got exposed and the palate of the American consumer expanded. Yeah. So now almost every kind of mega market has a little sushi section, yep. which is mind boggling. You know, when you think, Hell, ten years ago you wouldn't have even. There are some that, places you, know? you really shouldn't eat that. Yeah, sushi. my first reaction right. when I saw yeah. sushi in a supermarket was, "Oh no, no, <laughs> no!" Right, but, but, right. but then you try it eventually. Yeah, but then like, you hey, wander like, in at midnight yeah. drunk and you say, "I'm a Wegman's freak." I don't know if you guys know Wegman's. I mean, that's it's it's sort of a, a northeast thing, and and they have a, an amazing sushi section, you know. But I just I, I'm always struck that okay, if I want to find some kind of Ethiopian flatbread, you mm. know, I might be able to, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. as, as compared to 10, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. And I think it's the same exact thing that can be relayed uh, to entertainment mm-hmm. or or skeptical programming or things like that, that people don't know what they like or That's what right. they could like. Right. And if they could just get a taste by, you know, you initially have, again, to, to drive the sushi metaphor into the ground, but you have that initial little place that serves sushi somewhere and they have their loyal following that then bring friends in and it kind of spreads out and you get that, you know, uh, uh, sushi critical mass, you know, <laughs> and which is what I think we're heading towards. Again, yeah. you see, like, uh, I think Shermer said this yesterday, you look at, you know, you go to Borders or Barnes and Noble and for the first time you have an atheist section. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, 
yay. Yeah. You know, I used to stand in front of the spiritualism section, which was, you know, 30 feet long. Right. And the science section that was six feet long and just cry. I know. Yeah. I judge yes. bookstores by their Right. You know, place. and hey, if, whatever sells, it's you can't the blame thing. them. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but okay. Okay. It's slowly going and you see if people are exposed to it. I mean, and it's everything. It's, it's, I think it's the same experience that we all went through at some point, whether it was 10, 15, 20 years ago when I found Shermer's book, you know, mm-hmm. 12 years ago and thought, oh, this is like, a movement. Yeah, so there's something yeah. actually out this. there. Yeah. yeah, it's like, yeah. look what exists that I had no idea yeah, about. Yeah, there's yeah. other people that sort of think the same thing. And to walk in the halls here and see everybody with these blue badges that oh. we all have to wear. Oh, yeah. And that you can, uh, I mean, it struck me Thursday as I was walking, I felt like a trout. I was walking against the tide because I was trying to get to the last mm-hmm. little bit of coffee that they had still at the breakfast. And everybody's going towards the main thing. And it just struck me. I said, there's almost a thousand people here that philosophically are we probably agree 90%. Yeah. You know, which just never happens. You know, you and walk we're from all room. over the world too. That's the yeah. thing. Yeah. You know, I'm meeting people from Holland and from, from Australia and Japan and, 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 and it's so encouraging. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's still a pretty small sample in terms of a thousand people. But we're in the right direction. Years. I mean, but yeah. we're in the right direction. Yeah. yeah. You know, the, the, uh, the interesting thing about when I come to TAM is, uh, this is my second year. I find that everybody, everybody basically, like you said, there, there's a commonality in the thinking. Everybody is really friendly, very, very much yes. into learning. You know, there, right. there, there are things, there are common things here that I'm, I'm actually really surprised. You know, and you'd figure there'd be much more of a variety in a thousand people. Mm-hmm. But the attitude, the overall attitude is, let's learn, let's talk to each other, right. let's have a good time. Right. And, um, and I, I'll say it again, I was t- we were talking earlier, I'm really, Really wished I caught the show last night. Tell us where we can hear your music. Tell us where we can see your website. Sure. If you go to geologicpodcast.com, that's uh, my, my weekly show. Also, georgehrab.com. It's H-R-A-B. Um, and all my albums are available on iTunes. Mm-hmm. You can also go to cdbaby.com if you want the actual physical album. My uh, What I kind of pride myself on is my physical albums are sort of... Uh, events in of themselves They're gorgeous. In, this, in this digital yeah and this thank you in this in this age of digital downloads to encourage someone to buy an actual physical CD I think it has to be a little bit extra yeah special yeah, right. so yeah. packaging to me is real important in the last record uh, in Terabang it comes with a 26 page booklet in the middle there's an essay about the theory of relativity yep. and how the theory of relativity just kills me and uh, <laughs> and 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 trying to yes. spot yes. yet another you know yes. thank you for no- noticing that Philip <laughs> just uh, because George. your interview got crashed doesn't mean you have to do it no crash away. <laughs> crash away George what's your favorite thing that you do now is it the podcasting it sounded like it yeah, yeah, I, th- I think so. I don't know. I mean, it, it's it's what I'm doing at the time. I mean, last night I could have done a seven-hour show, yeah, because it was just exactly. And people probably would have stayed for a seven-hour show. I, I, they, yeah, you get the butt-numbing entertainment. But but I, I I just when I'm in the moment and when that when that Kandinsky idea of flow happens, yeah, and and you just you know and and I'm so lucky that I have so many. Th- Venues to flow. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a tampon commercial. Um, uh, <laughs> Heavy flow. Which is awful. Yes, 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 I appreciate my flow, uh, mm. even on the beach. Own it. Um, yeah. So yeah. So my favorite thing is what I'm doing at the moment. You know, if I'm playing drums with a funk band and we're and we're doing "I Wish" by Stevie Wonder. I want to do that all night. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, whereas, I mean, uh, if I'm being interviewed by smart people that are asking good questions, I want to do that all day. Yeah. So it's, it's what I'm doing in the moment. And I'm very fortunate that I can, I can do all those things. You know what's okay. weird about the internet is, uh, like with video games and just, just searching the web and everything, there's a lot of people just spending time alone on their computers. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, 
there's a lot of people connecting to a lot of people on the internet. I mean, mm-hmm. and I, and I find that to be wonderful about the internet. I mean, we we really do connect. I think we connect in more ways. And it may not be as intimate as sitting around the kitchen table with your family or whatever, but we get to talk to people from all over the world. And, and yet in ways it's almost more intimate. I mean, there are there if you think that, you know, I've I've done 70 shows, which is about 70 hours of of material that you can sort of literally be in my brain for 70 hours. If it's you a fun place to. to be. Yeah, I mean, hopefully it's scary <laughs> yeah. or whatever, ter- terrifying. I think there's a movie there, yeah. Being, yeah. being George Rapp. But that, and that's why when you do see that person standing 15 feet away, I mean, they know you, yeah. but yeah. they don't know and you. And you don't right. know them. <laughs> right. And it's such a one-way thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is such a fascinating yeah. thing. I mean, because I tell very personal stories. I mean, I, I, I completely tell, you know, very, very personal stuff sometimes that for me it's it's – the same way that songs are therapeutic for me. You know, if someone upsets me or something, I see something that is very frustrating. Mm-hmm. I try to channel it, write a song, and then I can kind of deal with it. The show deals the same way, and I try to keep it as entertaining as possible and not get too maudlin. But the biggest responses I've had have been to personal crises. I mean, mm-hmm. I wrote a song about, about losing my dog, you know, mm-hmm. that died uh, a couple of years, and it was a year anniversary. He died before I started the show. Uh, and at the year anniversary, I played this song. Oh, the response I got to this, yeah. you know, because oh, it was a it was a real moment. Whatever right. you want to call and who, it. And, and in the and in the traditional world of of people writing music and people buying albums and everything, it would never happen that way. Oh no, you wouldn't right. get the feedback like that. No, yeah, it would be in an album, and it would yeah. be two years later, and maybe someone at some point would come up and say, "Hey, I like that thing that you wrote two years ago." This was like I had just finished this thing. It was you know, and I thought, okay, here's a perfect chance. It's been a year. For Oscar, I'm going to play this, you know, and then uh, another friend of mine, she lost her boxer. I had a boxer. It was just the coolest. Boxers are nice dogs. Boxers are just the best. So she lost her boxer, so I played it again, and again, this flood of emails. So much so that even one listener, you know, whose mother was terminal, asked if he could play it at, at, you know, her her funeral, you know, because it sort of deals, it deals with this idea of as, as non-believers, how do we deal with loss and, and what is comforting to us? It's very easy to say, hey, he's in puppy heaven, right. you know, and to kind of comfort yourself with that. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't want, I didn't want that kind of to, to sink in and for me to even imagine that, you know, Oscar's in a better place. And yeah. I thought, what is the thing that I can latch onto? And the thing I latched onto, which then I, mean, I couldn't write this song for probably nine months. I just couldn't find the angle apart from saying, you know, I miss you. And what I figured out was this idea that the only positive thing in not having this afterlife and losing a loved one, not the only, but one thing I could latch onto was that they don't get to miss us. Yeah. Huh. That when he's wow. gone, his final moment of sort of being tired and going to sleep is his eternity. He thinks he's going to wake up mm-hmm. and go for a walk. Yeah. You know, we have to deal with the shit. We have to deal with the pain <laughs> and whatever. And that's, right. and I would much rather have it be on me, you know, right. and, and, hmm. And then this idea that, yeah, as you lose a loved one, okay, yeah, we get to miss them, but they don't get to miss <laughs> I, us. I just lost my cat I'm two so, weeks ago. Okay, okay. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, you know, I'm so bummed out right now. Yeah, no, and, yeah, and this took a turn for the, but, but, for the but that's the thing, though, you know. I I'm crying. No, man, I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you because I start talking about this stuff and I'm right there with you. Yeah. And, and, and I, I try to play this tune, you know, and it's, yeah, I, I'm right there with you, brother. I'm Jesus right Christ. there with you. And, and but, but that's what we have to hang on to. And, and, you know, it's kind of like an atheist in a foxhole moment mm-hmm. where right. it's like damn it no i'm not gonna i'm not gonna succumb and think to you know and sort of silently say to myself 
someone take care of this creature. Yeah, you know, right. It's like, no, mm-hmm. fuck it. No, damn it. I'm a, this is what I believe. And this is when you prove yourself. Yeah. It's very easy to say, you know, to be cynical or not, not cynical, but to be, you know, a non-believer in moments yeah. of pleasure. Right. But when we lose loved ones, you know, to be able to say, yeah, this is so completely unfair. Yeah. Right. But damn it, you know, this is the deal. Yeah, and right. at least, at least, you know, she can't miss you. Yeah. You know, yeah. We, we went through this with Perry um, yeah. Yeah. last year and we are coming up on his one year anniversary mm. of his parting. And, uh, boy, it's just, you know, every day we think about it. Yeah. He's never, yeah. never, yeah. and he never will be. Right. Perry, Perry was, was one, you know, was right. one of the rogues. Yeah. It was, you know, losing Perry was, um, it's so big. It was such a big blow because he was only 42 years old. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, Perry knew that he had like 10 years to go, right, Steve? Like yeah. The doctor told him. It was actually funny. Like eight years before he died, he was told, you got about eight years, you know, wow. with, the, with uh, average life expectancy. Oh, so it was eight years. It wasn't 10 years? Yeah, I think it was yeah. eight years with Sounds scleroderma. Cool. Yeah. Said, That's the average life expectancy from the point of diagnosis, and it was pretty accurate in retrospect. Pendulette was uh, just talking about loss as an atheist mm-hmm. as well, uh, because when he lost his mother, I, mm-hmm. I, I mean, he was destroyed. And he said that when a fellow atheist loses someone close, what he tends to say, and I forget his exact words, but it was something along the lines of, uh, this is going to hurt like hell. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. this is yeah. the yeah. worst feeling you in the world. Absolutely. And, 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 and she's gone. And it and it, it shows the value of that person. Right. I was yeah. I was astounded. I don't want to say astounded, but... I was shocked by how affected I was by losing Oscar. Yeah. And pleased by it too. That this kind of crusty musician asshole that I am could feel this much for something. You have to have, you know, if you don't have the spectrum, and that's, this is one thing that bothers me about religion and about not facing your own mortality. Like just putting that buffer of, well, I'm probably going to be okay and God loves me and everything. Right. I think one of the most profound time periods of my life was when I really had to say, that's it. I'm going to expire. It's going to yeah. be over. And yeah. it gave, it gave me much more of an appreciation. And, and that's it, the thing. Yeah. yeah. It turned, it turned into my life is I just throw myself on top of people. Like I don't waste the time. I, 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 yeah, yeah. Too, yeah. But I want, I want to know people intimately. Yeah. I want them to know how I feel. I don't have that barrier isn't there for me. I have the, a line in the film, a film, a line in the song is, uh, uh, I have no need for heaven or some eternal bluff. I prefer what's real, and what we've had here is enough. Here's, yeah. an, here's uh, another that's great, great. And that's, that's great. great. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. enough. Why do you that's need? Right. Why do you right. need clouds? You know, hopping around with wings on your back. Like yeah. this is real, and it should be enough. Another great thing about podcasting, and we know this through the through, through our experience with Perry, is you know, in a podcast now you're you're immortal now. I mean, yeah. there, there are 110 Absolutely. episodes now of yeah. our of our of our podcast out there that that have Perry, and that people legacy. can now who never knew him, and yeah. years from now they'll. Mm-hmm. They'll, they'll still be able to know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it is a sort of right. an immortality. That, that is something that 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 I, I like. I, it was just my dad's 65th birthday, uh, Father's Day. He was 65. We had a big party for him, and I I did this sort of presentation where I had people from his past calling. It was all joke stuff. Yeah, uh, just me pretending to be you know his his first gym teacher, his first camp counselor, things like that. And mm-hmm. I wanted to sort of immortalize it, so I yeah. put it on the show. Mm-hmm. And now it's like in a way, it's in a vault, and there right. it is, yeah. and sort of That's it's there fantastic. forever. That's and as right. things yeah, happen, right. you can kind of immortalize them yeah. through this medium, and it's yeah. it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, the digital immortality, you know, quote unquote, is right. Is, interesting and is, is useful but there's also just your influence on people yeah. you know the, the people Absolutely, that we influence yeah. will go on with their lives and they'll influence other people's yeah. we've made a ripple in the pond that will never you know fully yeah, go that, out that, so, that, yeah. that meme kind of that personal yeah. meme that you can spread right. you know right. hopefully right and yeah george and i i think that you can be particularly proud of you know your your the legacy that you've left 
thus far, and I can't wait to see That's what's, coming next. Yeah. what coming, yeah. next? what's it, coming next. What is coming next? Is there an album? Is there another yes, album? Yes, n- album number number six. Uh, my good friend Slough, who's my engineer out of out of uh, Astoria, Queens, B Sharp Studio, he said, "All right, it's time. Let's go. What's what's the plan? I have just about eighty percent of it written." The last twenty percent usually is the deadline writing. That right. you just okay, gotta finish, gotta finish. Let's go, okay. <laughs> Which I need. Uh, so I think I'm gonna record probably August, September, and hopefully with uh, with the new year. If not before then, we'll have album number number six. Oh, I can't excellent. wait. We'll excellent. have to have you on again when it's coming out. Absolutely, yes. please, Plug please. The hell out of that. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> George, this was great. Thank you for sitting. Thank with you us. so much, guys. I really appreciate Thank it. You. Thanks, George. Thank Thank pleasure. You. It's time for science or. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real, one fake. And I challenge my skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Is everyone ready? Yes. Item number one. A new study shows that simply educating older patients about the benefits of regular exercise results in improved quality of life and significantly reduces the risk of heart disease. Item number two. For the first time, astronomers have imaged the accretion disk surrounding a black hole. And item number three, scientists have discovered a protein in human saliva that greatly speeds wound healing. Rebecca, go first. Okay. I'm pretty sure that human saliva does speed up wound healing because I knew this kid in the third grade used to like lick his own cuts to gross us out. And it always seemed like it worked. I just wanted to tell that story for some reason. It was gross, and I suddenly remembered it. The accretion disk surrounding a black hole. I'm actually not 100% sure what that is. It's the, it's the disk of stuff that a black hole is in the process of sucking in. It's a disk of material spiraling into the black hole. Oh, okay. And for the first time, they imaged it? Hmm. Yep. And a new study says that educating older patients about the benefits of regular exercise results in improved quality of life. Simply educating them. I think that sounds suspiciously common sense. Um, I think that perhaps just educating older patients about the benefits of exercise doesn't necessarily have significant results. I think it might take more than that, like actually signing them into a course or something where they're actually moving and... Yeah, I I think that one sounds fishy to me. I'm going to say that that's not true. Okay, Bob. Um, see, the protein in human saliva greatly speeds wound healing. Greatly. Hmm. I mean, we've always heard that, right? About saliva and with dogs licking your wound, your a cut or something, or the uh, accretion disk surrounding a black hole. The first time, well, I know the accretion disk. As the matter spirals down the drain of the black hole, it emits X-rays as it heats up. But we, and we've seen that before, but hmm, don't know about that one. Uh, let's see. Yeah, the simply edu- just simply educating the elderly about the benefits of exercise significantly reduces the risk of heart disease. I mean, that's are we supposed to swallow that? I mean, what kind of crap is that? I do know that that even that even very minor exercise by the elderly can can work wonders. Like I've read of some studies where uh, they had these uh, octogenarians doing like lifting weights. You know, it, it didn't matter that they were like 10 pound dumbbells, but they literally tripled their strength in just a small amount of time. And, and when you're that age, it can mean the difference between being able to, you know, carry the groceries in the house or, you know, sitting in 
a chair most of the day. So the benefits are huge. But just hearing about it, I mean, what the, what the hell? How the hell are we supposed to buy that? So I, that's got to be fiction, I guess. Jeez. Okay, Evan? Um, right. I'm, I'm tending to agree, I think, with everybody else here. So the protein in human saliva, speeding, wound healing. Yeah, animals lick their wounds. And why should humans be any different than any other animal in that regard? Because so. we're not gross. Uh, imaging the accretion disk surrounding a black hole. The only thing about that one that puzzled me a little bit is, haven't we already imaged the accretion disk surrounding a black hole? Based on photographs and other, and other things you know, you've seen? Or are those just representations or they're just measuring... Dramatic recrea- recreations. And, uh, yeah, so simply educating older patients? No, because they need help. I mean, what are you going to do? You, you, you put a book in front of them and, here, read this, and then they're going to get up and go and do what they have to do. So uh, I'm in agreement with everyone else. Okay, so let's... Uh, reverse order. We'll take them in reverse order. Yeah, why not? Scientists have discovered a protein in human saliva that greatly speeds wound healing, and that is science. Yay! Yay, science! Um, and yeah, that's not the first time that that observation was made um, about licking your wounds, but they actually or just cuts and not not just licking wounds, but just cuts, cuts in the mouth like just seem to yeah. heal faster. Now the question was: Was it just um, a antibacterial effect? You know, just mm. uh, or was it actually something that was was directly improving wound healing? And what they found is that it's well, it's both, but it, there is a protein that actually directly inc- improves wound healing. Uh, and they isolated the protein. It's called histatin, H-I-S-T-A-T-I-N. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. And so, in ten years, we'll see some. Maybe we'll see some research come out to consumers for this. Ten, twenty, twenty years, maybe. Yeah, hopefully it won't take that long. But what they're saying is that they could. This is the kind of stuff you could put in, like bacitracin ointment. You know, you could put or a band aid. How about a band aid? Yeah, you could put it in ointments and bandages and stuff like that. That will help the wound healing directly. It's since it's topical, you know, then the fact that it's a protein is not a big deal. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it'll take less time than that. Uh, number two, for the first time, astronomers have imaged the accretion disk surrounding a black hole. Uh-oh. You all thought that was science. And that one was indeed science. Yay for us. Yay. Now, Bobby, right, they, we've seen x-ray bursts and things like that from, from the disk. And that is one of the theories about quasars, for example, that that's very supermassive black holes inside, inside galaxies may pro- you know, because it's rotating, may produce you know, these physical effects that result in things like the uh, quasars and gamma rays and stuff. But the, we've never been able to actually image the accretion disk and see its spectrum. Ah, there are predictions about what the spectrum should look like if our current models are accurate. So they really wanted to be able to see the spectrum of an accretion disk so they could validate or invalidate our models. And they figured out a way to do this. What they did was they attached a polarizing filter to the United Kingdom Infrared Telescope on Mauna Kea in Hawaii. The reason why they did this was because the theories were that all the dust and everything around the black holes, the clouds of gas and dust, etc., also give off light, and they obscure the accretion disk. That's why we haven't been able to image its spectrum, because it's obscured by all the dust and, and um, gas clouds. But if the light given off by the accretion disk is polarized, then they can use a polarizing filter to separate it out from all the rest of the light. That's what they did, and it worked. And we were able to see, the for the first time, image the spectrum of the accretion disk around a black hole. Pretty cool. Cool. And it did validate their model. Yeah. So once again, science gets it right. 
Yay, Val- Validation's all good, but sometimes, you, you know, you, you, you don't want to be validated. Like, oh, new science. It's a balance. If you're always yeah. wrong, then, you know, you're not building anything. You gotta, <laughs> right. You want to you, you build, but also every now and then be surprised and show you new you know, angles for new discovery. So it's a good balance. It's a good balance, I think. All of which means that, number one, a new study shows that simply educating older patients about the benefits of regular exercise results in improved quality of life and significantly reduced reduces the risk of heart disease is fiction. fiction. And you guys all zeroed in on exactly why it is fiction because just educating people about stuff does nothing. What the study actually showed was that education has no effect. <laughs> but wow. but oh, if wow. you give them a program, then it helps. So this is good. In fact, this is, you know, ironically, just like two days ago, I was talking to one of our new residents about this very fact that a lot of medical care is premised on physicians educating patients about what they should be doing. You should quit smoking and you should eat right and you should exercise. But the evidence all shows that it doesn't work. It's interesting. You know, a lot of what we do is not evidence-based in that educating people about what they should be doing doesn't work. People are not rational beings in the, at the end of the day. We don't do things because we should do them. Uh, if you want to affect statistically a population of people, you have to make their good choices easier, right? So you have to affect right. their choices. Uh, or you have to use social pressures to do it. You have to use peer pressure you know, to, to get them to, to change their choices. So you have to, instead of telling them about the benefits of exercise and what they should be doing, you give them a a very specific program, you give them manageable goals, and you make them track what they're doing, track their own progress, write down what they do, and report it. And that works. Depressing. Okay, fun. Yeah, I mean, it's, no. it's, 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 it's good to know, though. I mean, I'd be, given that that's no, it's, true, it's, good to know. it's very mm-hmm. empowering to know that. You just Whatever the context is, you know, raising kids, treating patients, cha- you know, trying to reduce drunk driving and or whatever, that just the scared straight programs don't work. You got to do do this little bit of social engineering. You got to affect their choices. You know, that's too bad because today at the office, some woman brought her children in, and I commented that it was probably like a straight scared straight program um, mm-hmm. to make sure kids don't end up in cubicle farms. <laughs> um, but sadly, those children are probably lost. Right, right. Okay, I have, a, I have a quote. Can I do the quote? And the quote is, wait, did we decide we're, send, we're saying who it is beforehand? I think we did, It's right? up to Jay. It's, <laughs> it's up, up to, to me. Well, I hear, what do I do? We decided okay. it was up to Jay. I have a quote from Mark Twain, and this was a quote that was... Um, Mentioned by a, a commenter on Skeptic, considering very apropos, considering all of the goings on of the past few weeks. Mark Twain said, We despise all reverences and all the objects of reverence which are outside the pale of our own list of sacred things. And yet, with strange inconsistency, we are shocked when other people despise and defile the things which are holy to us. Mark Twain! <laughs> <laughs> he totally got it. Oh yeah. Oh, Twain. Yeah, right. He did. Yeah. He was good people. Wonderful. Love I, that guy. I have not read enough of him and I will I will eventually catch up in my life by reading his collective work. Such an observer of the human condition. Oh, Too yeah. many people stop fir- after Huck Finn in 8th grade or whatever. Keep going. Yeah. It's <laughs> brilliant. Well, thank you all again for joining me. A pleasure thank as you. always. Do we have any announcements for next week? 
We are planning a September live event in New York, and this will be the first annual Perry DeAngelis Memorial event. Uh, we will hopefully have all the details available for you next week. Save the date. And stay Whatever tuned. Date that might be. Yeah, so stay tuned. We don't have any. I have a tentative date, but I want to give it out until we, until it's final. So right. hopefully by next week we'll have everything finalized. But it will be kind of at the endish of September. And uh, Boston Skeptics in the Pub is Monday, July twenty eighth. BostonSkeptics.com. Yeah, which is my daughter's ninth birthday. That's right. Happy birthday! Oh, and come see us at Dragon Con, everyone. That's true. Bob, oh, yeah. Evan, and I will be at Dragon Con in Atlanta, Georgia from August 29th to the 31st. Um, I will be giving a lecture on science-based medicine. We'll, we're going to hopefully be having a debate between skeptics and true believers. And the three of us are going to be recording a live SGU show at Dragon Con. I was also asked to announce that Dean Cameron is doing his show, The Nigerian Spam Scam Scam, Tuesday, July 29th and Wednesday, July 30th at the Reno Is Art Town Festival in beautiful Reno, Nevada. Check it out at renoisarttown.com. So thanks again for joining me, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Doctor. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. Problem.